Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Advent and Christmas tide, we are going to consider together the great O Antiphons. We know them today in the famous hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but they date back as far as the 6th century and by the time of the 8th century were widely used in the liturgies of the seven days that led up to Christmas as sort of an Advent within Advent. Each verse highlights for us part of what we long for in the first and second coming of Jesus, and therefore part of what we are given in the gift of Jesus. It's our hope that these sermons will both help you prepare for and to celebrate the gift of Jesus. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless. Lord, we're, th- we're thankful for your word that instructs us in your ways and points us to the word made flesh, Jesus. In him we hope, we desire. Our longings are met in him. Uh, Lord, teach us now uh, through your word we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so this Advent and Christmas tide, uh, we're looking at the O antiphons. Uh, there was a break last week a little bit because I hadn't been feeling well, and thankfully Bruce preached for us. Um, these O antiphons are, are these famous stanzas. They're a poem that was written in the 6th century, we think. That was when it first sort of appears. We're not sure exactly who wrote it. And by the 8th century, the church used it uh, widely for the prayers of the seven days that led up. Uh, to Christmas, and so they were sort of an Advent within Advent, and we know them uh, today mostly as the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but the hymn puts them in a very different order. I don't know if you noticed, actually, but the, the order that we had, the, the last stanza that we sang was, um, was actually the second one in, in the order, the original order. So it's ruler of the house of Israel, or Adonai, you know, the one who gives the law. And that doesn't actually really make sense because if you look at the original poem, it actually follows from creation, which we looked at two weeks ago, a wisdom from on high who orders all things mightily, uh, through to the story of God coming among us as Emmanuel. So actually, Emmanuel in the original, as far as we know, is the last stanza when we finally celebrate that God has come among us. So it sort of follows some of the history of Israel. Um, And I think there's a a real... uh, a gift in sort of taking them as they're originally given to us because we follow the story of Israel's long waiting. Um, Today we're going to look at this sort of second major movement in the story of redemption. And and really, I mentioned this earlier, but this is sort of the story of redemption of God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, The redeeming of God's people out from slavery and the giving of the law. So here's how the, the second stanza reads. Ruler of the house of Israel, who gave the law at Mount Sinai uh, to Moses at Mount Sinai, come, come and save us with outstretched arms. That's the second stanza. Okay, this week I read a couple stories of slavery. I want to tell them to you. The first one that I want to tell you uh, was told by a man named Moses Wallace Berry. Moses Wallace Berry was named after his great uh, great grandfather. So his great grandfather Wallace White. Wallace uh, White was a slave in Kentucky, and 
the story of his freedom is kind of remarkable. He was actually out in the field that was owned by his owner doing his normal work that he had done day in and day out. And all of a sudden he heard this loud no noise and he felt the, the, the rumble of the ground. And all of a sudden the Missouri 6th Cavalry is coming through the field where he's doing his work. And they're coming right at him. Now, he doesn't know who it is, but they're coming right at him on their horses. And they ride right up to him and they stop right in front of him. And they say this, do you want to go fight this battle with us? having lived his whole life on a plantation. And he says, deed I do. And what they did was they took him, they gave him a horse, they gave him a gun, and until the end of the Civil War, he stayed with that cavalry the entire time. In fact, the, the picture that was part of this story was, that the, uh, was a picture from... 1908, where the Missouri 6th Cavalry gathered together. They did this every decade. Wherever they were living, they gathered together, and they got a picture of, of the cavalry all together from the end of the war, then 19, uh, 1868, 78, 88, 98, and finally in 1908 was the last picture of the Missouri 6th Cavalry. Wallace is the only black man in those pictures, but he's fully a part of that cavalry. Wallace... Uh, was known throughout his life as a very gentle man. And Moses, this great-grandson, the, the, the one who was telling this story, um, he told about this story that was passed down. Moses' dad and his uncles were uh, hanging out with their grandfather. And one of them asked him, why, why is it that you've been known to be such a kind man? And he said, because I'd been free, I, I've been freed and because I'm on my way to heaven. That past reality... And that future reality marked his life. Let me tell you the second story. Um, this story is told uh, in the Atlantic in 2017. Maybe some of you have read this. I'd encourage you to read it. Um, it's written by Alex Tizon, T-I-Z-O-N. And the title is My Family's Slave. My Family's Slave. The subtitle says... She lived with us for 56 years. She raised me and my siblings without pay. I was 11, a typical American kid, before I realized who she was. Uh, Lola is her name. Lola was 12 years old in 1943 when Alex's grandfather, Tom, approached her and offered her food and shelter if she would take care of Tom's daughter, Alex's mother. Lola was in a strange situation. She was living in the Philippines. She was 12 years old, but her parents wanted her to marry as a 12-year-old, somebody that was twice her age. She was a pig farmer. She had no desire to do that, and so she agreed to this Tom, that she would become this person that would take care of his daughter. She had no idea that she was agreeing to something for life. She was uh, formally given to Alex's mother, Tom's daughter, when Alex's mother turned 18 years old. Seven years later, Alex's parents, now married, moved from the little town that they lived in in the Philippines to Manila, where his uh, dad got a better job. Alex was then four years old when they moved to Seattle, where his dad worked for the Philippine consulate in Seattle. 
they brought Lola with her. Lola didn't want to go. She wanted to stay close enough where she might see her parents from time to time. But she was promised then that she would have a sort of a, a stipend that she could then send back to her impoverished parents. She never got that. She raised the kids. She did the dishes. She cooked the meals. She did the laundry. Alex says he remembers every night she would fall asleep on her bed of unfolded clothes. That was her bed. She never got her allowance. She once asked for it, and she removed, or she, she received a scolding for even asking. Um, Alex's dad's job there in Seattle uh, came to an end, and they moved from Seattle to California to the Bronx. Eventually, they ended up in Oregon, where his parents divorced. Still, Lola was there, caring for the kids, bringing them to school, bringing them home, doing the dishes, doing all of the work of the house. She had no papers that allowed her to be in the United States. She had no way out, nowhere to go. She actually did eventually become a U.S. citizen in 1998 after serving Alex's mom for 56 years and never once receiving any money for it. So we're in this season of Advent that I mentioned, which means coming, but of course for the church what we have focus so often is the waiting. And I want to suggest to you that, of course, Wallace and Lola, they knew waiting. They also knew waiting in such a way that their hope made them sick because it was so deferred. Some of you know that great proverb, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Waiting for generations for Wallace and his ancestors to be freed from slavery waiting for decades upon decades for Lola. Their hearts were no doubt sick. Um, the other thing I think that waiting does is it makes us resigned. You know what I mean? Give up. He's not coming back again for you. You're not ever going to get your freedom. Give up. Give up on God. Maybe give up on a certain way of being in the world. Now, I want us to think back on this story of Israel, right? Um, we can think back, maybe you know the story, um, after creation and sort of uh, proto-history, the first ch chapters of the Bible, what we come upon is the promise of God to Abraham. Abraham, and he promises Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. It would be so numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore and um, he would make his name great. He would bless him. He would give him a land. And in blessing him, he would bless the nations. The hope of the world, in some ways, rested upon this blessing that Abraham received from God. We can think back about the stories of Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons, particularly Joseph, you know, the one with the multicolored coat and the dreams and all that. You can think with me of how Joseph was sold to slavery by his own brothers, and how he ended up down in Egypt. But there down in Egypt, he became second in command uh, to Pharaoh. And then a family eventually brought his own brothers and his father down to Egypt. All of that stuff happens in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And then when you come uh, to turn the page to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, what we learn is that the people had multiplied, and you would think that, oh, Man, they multiplied. That's part of the promise of God to Abraham. 
maybe he's making good on this promise. But what we find immediately that is, as soon as they multiply, there's a new Pharaoh who doesn't like it. It's having nothing with it. We learn there that they, they were there and they'd become slaves and they were there for 400 years. And the hardship builds and it builds in this slavery down in Egypt. Verse 11 of chapter 1 says this, Therefore they, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The same chapter, verses 13 and 14, it says this, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 400 years of that. A promise that came to God's people 600 years before. I mean, hope deferred makes the heart sick. What of God and all these promises? I mean, think of Israel, think of Israel there, down in Egypt, uh, living a life of turmoil, of sorrow, of hurt. Um, oftentimes probably of, of deep loneliness. Certainly the loneliness of God. How long? Oh Lord, how long? Under the oppressive hand of an abuser of their dignity, of their beauty, of their goodness, of their worth. I want you to think about this. They, they knew abuse. We know from other parts of that story um, that some of them knew physical abuse. Some of them knew verbal abuse. We know part of the story is that the entire community actually knew physical abuse to the extent that Pharaoh ordered the young male children to be killed. And if it's a slavery situation like almost any other slavery situation in the history of the world, no doubt they knew sexual abuse. Their bodies didn't matter. Their souls didn't matter. Their hearts, they didn't matter. I guarantee you they longed for redemption in a deep and profound way. They longed for the day when these promises from long ago might be fulfilled. They waited. Now I'm going to get to the next part of the story, but I want you to think, um, I want you to think with me just for a moment of how hard waiting is. Um, I mean, I mentioned this to the children, but it's really true. I'm like, uh, I think I'll just go to the store and get what I would need right now. I mean, we are not a people who wait. It's probably harder for us than maybe for any other people in uh, the history of the world. We have fast food, and we have really fast internet. We got a new router last week, and we already had the latest one, and I'm shocked at how fast it is. Um, you can be uh, in Trader Joe's, and a song comes over the radio while you're getting your gummy tummy yummies. And you can just ask your phone, hey, Siri, what song is this? And she'll reply, rocking around the Christmas. You know, it's like takes no time at all. She's like, I got it. What information do you need? You don't have to wait at all. Um, we are not a people of waiting. And, and if actually in the event that we're being forced to wait, like those ridiculously long lines at Costco, um, then we just distract ourselves. Games on our phone, TikTok. Instagram, text somebody. Just don't think about the pain of waiting for five minutes to get all this amazing stuff that you get just like by buying it off a shelf. We don't have the experience. We rarely have the experience of waiting. 
like so many people did throughout the history of the world. And I think there's something that's lost in that. There's something that's lost in the immediacy of our gratifications being met. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of us would want to des- uh, should even desire the situation of Egypt long ago. But there is sort of a beauty in the, the history that we're taught. That God shows up for those who wait. Many of our desires are quickly met, and it actually distracts us from this discipline of sitting and waiting with God. Now, I do want to say that even in a world like ours, where we can kind of have our desires met right away, the fact is that those are the shallow desires of life. None of the deep, deep longings of our heart are met right away. The longings that Israel experienced, loneliness, estrangement from family members, um, tragedies, people um, seeking to do harm to our bodies, our hearts, our souls, with their fists or with their words, with their bodies, with their indifference. That desire for that to be done away with, those kind of longings never are taken away quickly. We know that the agony of long wait, a long, long wait. Even though we've become masters of not waiting in sort of the mundane things of this, of this life, our longing for redemption has not gone away. It's not gone away for any of us. Our hearts are still longing for the promised land, for God to come and to bring glad tidings. Good news, great joy for this sorrowful world. So here's the next move in this story, though. And this, this, this was so beautiful as I was sitting in this, this last week and a half. Um, so God calls Moses to himself, right? And that's what's highlighted in the second stanza, the reality of Moses in the story. God calls Moses to himself, and this is what he says to him there at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. This is what God says. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard the cry of my people because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, the land, out of that land to a good and broad land. Doesn't that sound just like Advent good news? Okay, um, let, me, let me read that again. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard the cry of my people because of their taskmaster. I know their sufferings, and I have come down. This is Advent gospel. This is the good news of God. The long awaiting was not lost on God. This long promise of long, long waiting is not lost on God. He knows their suffering. He knows it completely. The gospel waiting The good news waiting had not been in vain. The gospel coming had come to them. The good news of God knowing their situation and coming for them. This is an Advent story. The gospel comes to the hurting and to the lonely, to the abused, and no doubt to them who are questioning, God, when will you come? How long? It says explicitly, I've come down. Now the Advent gospel here even gets clearer as the story goes on. Um, Moses says this. 
who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What's God's response? I'm with you. Emmanuel. God with you. Emmanuel, redemption by God, because I am with you. Advent good news. And as we keep going on in the story, it actually just keeps happening again and again, this Advent good news. What we find in the story of the Exodus is exactly what we find in the good news of Christ. God does what we cannot do for ourselves. I want you to think again about this story, okay? So Moses says to God, God, they're not going to believe me. And he says, I'll give you signs so they believe you. Moses then says, God, I'm not eloquent. He says, I'll give you Aaron. He knows how to speak. At each point, Moses is saying, I can't do this. And God says, I'm going to show up. I will be with you. I will provide for you. I will be with you. Think about this. Even the signs of Moses uh, to Pharaoh that Moses was given, they, they move initially, these signs that Moses does for uh, Pharaoh. They move from signs that Pharaoh's magicians can do. Maybe you'll remember that first, you know, he throws down the staff and it turns into a snake and then he grabs it by the tail and it turns back into a staff. And Moses is like, yeah, yeah, I got some magicians too. And then they come and they actually do that. Now Moses' snake swallows theirs up. It's kind of, I mean, obviously God wins in that. But at first you're like, well, this is weird. This is just the same thing that these people can do. Who is this God? And then actually, you know, even some of the, the great... Um, uh, miracles that God does in the Exodus, some of them have sort of natural explanations that we could give. We know that there's an algae in the Nile River that in certain seasons and certain temperatures becomes red. And, the, and, and if you have enough of it, you could say, hey, you know, it's just a, it's, a, it's not a bloody Nile. It's an algae red Nile. But eventually it gets to the point where nobody can deny that without God, this would never have happened. God shows up and he, he does what he alone can do. This is an Advent good news story. God shows up. And he does what he alone can do by parting the Red Sea and making it so that they can cross on dry land. Giving them manna from heaven. Giving them the, 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 the cloud by day and the pillar of light by night. See, okay, over and over and over again in the Old Testament, this is the story of redemption that God's people go back to. We heard one of, one of the examples from Psalm 105, but you could just look at Psalm 106. You could look at Psalm 138, Psalm 136. You can just keep going back, and you can see this story being told again and again and again. God bringing his people out from slavery in Egypt. God hearing, as it said in Exodus chapter 3, God seeing... God knowing and God acting and coming down for his people. He sees, he knows, he feels their pain and their suffering, their loneliness and their hurt, their tragedy, their abuse, and he comes. It is not lost on him one bit. And redemption only ever happens by Emmanuel, by God who is with us. There then long ago they knew they knew God as the Lord of might. Right? I mean, that's what we sing. Come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height did ancient times just give the law. They knew him as the Lord of might, who with his outstretched arm could bring them out from slavery in Egypt and bring them to himself. 
He was the only one that could do this kind of redemption. Even when the chariots of Egypt are chasing them down. And they knew that if God can do that, nothing can stop him. Friends, this is what we celebrate in Advent. This kind of God. This Lord of might who does what we, we can't do. The things that our hearts long for that seem so broken, they're completely beyond our healing or our acting upon and our fixing. But God sees it. He knows the suffering of his people. He sees it perfectly. And he acts and he goes and he redeems. Think about Jesus among us. God among us. Emmanuel with us. He's the Lord of might. Think about what he does when he comes. One of the things he does is he casts out the demons from the, uh, the demoniac in the garrison. Um, he, he's called the Legion. That's what the, demo, the demons are named because there were so many. And Jesus just quickly cast them out. He's the Lord of might. He's the Lord of might who comes to the, to, the, to the temple and he overturns the tables. He says, what are you doing? You who only live for profit and production, for paychecks. This isn't the way of the world. He comes as the Lord of might. Jesus comes as the Lord of might who restores social outcasts like the woman at the well or the woman with bleeding. He lifts up the brokenhearted. He gives liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Think about this. Of all the, I mean, in God's perfect providence, the first pa passage that Jesus reads to define his ministry there in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4 is from Isaiah chapter 61. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He set me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What God is saying there, what Jesus is saying is, I've seen, I've heard, I know, and I'm acting. And I'm doing it in a way that I alone can do it. This is how Jesus comes to us. But here's a strange thing, okay? So I'm thinking about this stanza from the O Antiphons. And... Um, what really struck me about this is it's telling the story of the redemption of Israel from Egypt and this great redemptive story that marks the whole Old Testament. And it talks about God as being Adonai, the Lord of might, the one whose strong arm redeems his people in a way that nobody else could. But if you notice, it seems as though the emphasis is actually on giving of the law. I don't know if any of y'all noticed that. Um... Here's how it goes again. Let, let me read it again to you. This is the uh, more original translation. Ruler of the house of Israel, who gave the law to Moses at Sinai, come, come and save us with outstretched arm. They're so seeking salvation, but what marks him is the one who gives the law at Mount Sinai. Here's, how, here's what we sang earlier. O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to your tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty. And awe. Now, one of the things that we rarely respond to with words like this, rejoice, rejoice, is when we say, hey, here's a new law. <laughs> Not really how it works most of the time. But just as the Bible over and over again recounts for us, 
God coming for his people in, uh, when they were in Egypt, in slavery, bound, and saving them with his strong, outstretched arm. So over and over and over again in the Bible, the law of the Lord is talked about as something to be desired, something to be treasured, um, something to hope for and to pursue, something that Psalm 119 Verse 105 says, because gives, gives life to the bone and it's a light to our path. It's to be more desired than gold and silver and honey and all this kind of stuff. But we don't want to sing rejoice, rejoice about that part. Just tell us the redemption part, right? But let me explain, I think, how these things are so um, unbelievably connected together by sort of wrapping up Lola's story, okay? And then I'll wrap up here. So Alex's mother, the guy who wrote this article in The Atlantic, um, she, she died eventually. And Lola was 75 years old when Alex's mother died. And she had been with Alex's mother since she was 12 years old as a slave. Um, so Alex welcomed Lola to come and to live with he and his wife and their two, two girls. And uh, he gave Lola a, a room of her own, her first room of her own, in their house, which is in North Seattle. The year is 1998. He said, you can sleep in, you can watch soap operas, you can do whatever you want. You're free. This is one of the things that Alex wrote, though. I should have known it wouldn't be that simple. She cooked breakfast when all he ate for breakfast was a banana and coffee. She did the dishes. She did the ironing. She made the bed. She swept the floors. Lola, you don't have to do that. Lola, that's the kids' chores. Lola, we can do that. Lola, I am not my mom and my dad. Lola, you are free. You're free. Over and over and over again. He would say, quote, This is your house now. You are not here to clean. Okay. And then he said, then she'd go right back to doing it. And of course she did. She didn't know any other way to be in the world. She didn't know any other way to be in the world. Think about, think about Israel. 400 years in slavery? What does that do to a people? Think about the American story. Whatever, whatever date you date it to. 1619. Hundreds of years of slavery. What does that do to somebody? What habits are formed? What sort of mental thoughts are given to your own dignity and your own ability to act in the world? He said, then one night, Alex came home to find Lola sitting on the couch with a cup of tea, watching a soap opera with her feet on the coffee table. And he wrote, progress. 
And then he, as he tells the story, she actually eventually started to plant a garden and tend to it. She loved tulips and orchids. And she made that little plot in their backyard in North Seattle a lovely, lovely garden. Your redemption and the redemption of the people of Israel is for the beauty of the world. To declare the glory of God. What God does is he, he takes us out from these long habits of slavery to sin. Of being given over to a way that is, is, is not marked by a free people. And he says, you are now free. And let me teach you the beauty of living for me. Let me show you what it means to be a free people. And I think when we pair those things together... The reality that God, even after the long, long waiting, always makes good on his promise. And he always sees the plight of his people, and his heart breaks for it, and he acts, and he comes down for us. As he did long ago for Israel, as he did in, in Jesus, and as he will do at his second coming. When we see those things together, then we look at the law and we say, Lord, teach us your ways. Speak, Lord. Your servant's listening. We want to be shaped by you. We want to be a free people. We want to show forth the beauty of a God who acts, who is present, who comes, who knows the plight of the world and who acts to redeem it. Friends, this is the story of our lives. It's Advent story. It's a good news story. It's God who comes, God who redeems, and God who shapes us. That he might bless us and through us bless the world. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're thankful for these stories of old. Stories that for many of us we've heard our whole lives or for a long time. God, I pray that we might see them afresh. God acting. God coming. God, that we can sing songs like, How long, O Lord? Will you turn your face away? And we can sit in the agony of the waiting and the, and the tragedy of it and the loneliness of it and sometimes the despair of it, but we can sit in it with you because we know that you hear and that you see and that you have acted and that you will act. God, with the people long ago, we cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Be to us again our Emmanuel. God with us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.